Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast Historical Fiction, featuring Evelyn Conlon, Kate Mildenhall and Dominic Smith in conversation with Catherine Keenan, recorded live at the 2016 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Thank you so much. Um, thank you all for being here on this um, rather wet morning. It's wonderful to have such a lovely audience and it's wonderful to be here with these writers. So I will just briefly introduce them all. Kate Mildenhall in the middle there. Um, Kate is here today to talk about her first novel, Skylarking, recently published by Black Ink last Monday, I believe, fresh off the press. Um, it is set on a cape on the New South Wales coast in the 1880s and follows the friendship of two girls, Kate and Harriet, and the tragedy that befalls them. Next to Kate over here is Evelyn. Evelyn's book, Not the Same Sky, tells the story of three young women who were among the 4,000 Irish, orphaned Irish girls shipped to Australia following the Great Famine of 1847. They came out on the Thomas Arbuthnot, is that how you pronounce it, Evelyn? under the watch of Surgeon Superintendent Charles Strutt, and she follows them as they make their new lives in Australia. Evelyn has published three previous novels, three books of short stories, and has been writer-in-residence at places including University College Dublin, and she was nominated for the Laureate for Irish Fiction in 2014. Down on the end, Dominic Smith grew up in Sydney but has spent most of his adult life in Austin, Texas. He is the author most recently of the last painting of Sarah DeVos. Is it Sarah or Sarah? You can say either. Yeah. <laughs> a New York Times bestseller and a New York Times book review editor's choice selection. It's a historical novel that weaves together 17th century Holland, Sydney in 2000 and Manhattan in the 1950s. Dominic is the author of three previous novels um, he has won the Sherwood Anderson Fiction Prize, among others, and been shortlisted for the Age Book of the Year and the, Van the Van Vance Palmer Prize. Mm. All right, so Kate, look, I thought we might start with you. Um, I wondered um, if you could just tell us a little bit about the historical moment that inspired this book for you, and then with, with all the writers, they'll just read a short passage just so you can get a flavour of the novel and then we'll, then we'll get into talking about them. Certainly. Um, the story of Skylarking came about, I actually found this story when I was camping um, on the coast with my family and my best friend. So this is a story really about friendship um, at its core. And we were actually camped next to um, a gravesite. Uh, in the middle of the camping ground and I, as you do, noticed these things and I found that this um, grave belonged to a girl called Harriet Parker. And while we were camping, we had a look at the um, other kind of, the lighthouse that was there and discovered that uh, Harriet and Kate had been best friends growing up as the daughter daughters of the lighthouse keeper and the assistant keeper. And this really struck me, these two girls in the 1880s stuck on this really isolated coast, um, really small community. And I wondered what that would have been like. And when I got back to Melbourne, I um, did a bit of research and found out what had happened to these girls. And it was um, shocking and, and tragic and that there was a, a man involved as there so often is, um, a fisherman who had come to this part of the coast. So from there I became 
quite obsessed with the story. It's um, I've moved it away from the true story, but um, that's at its core. Mm, great. Sure. I'm just going to read a little from the um, from the start for you. The sky was clear and blue forever that day, clear and blue and so bright. Sunlight fell through the leaves, forming dark shadows and spots so blindingly white they forced me to look away. Harriet had packed a picnic, some ginger cake, half a loaf of soda bread, a square of butter wrapped in wax paper. It seemed the beginning of something, this day, the sun, our being together again, making our way down the track to MacPhail's hut. I remember our chatter. I remember her grip on my wrist. I remember her veering from the track, pointing toward the hut, the absence of smoke from the chimney. I remember the empty echo of our knocks on the door. I remember letting ourselves in. I remember the hat and the voice I used, strange and deep, that I pulled from somewhere inside to make her laugh. Always, always to make her laugh. I remember the way Harriet turned, breathless, laughing, a strand of her golden hair caught on her bottom lip. And after that, I try not to remember. So, Evelyn, you were saying beforehand that this was a book you didn't think you'd write. So, can you tell us what sort of what, what was the, the the historical moment that sort of interested you and kind of made you feel that there was a book here? I think something. What, what I was talking about was is that it isn't just that I didn't think that I would write this book about Australia. I didn't think I would ever go near the famine. Um, and it's, it's an odd thing that happens with a novel. Well, it, it, short stories as well sometimes. For instance, I've just finished writing uh, a short story about the Irish woman who tried to shoot Mussolini. Uh, and most people don't know about her. Nobody knows about her. I can tell you if it was an Irish man, we would know all about him. <laughs> and there would be plaques everywhere. And indeed, if he was from any other nationality. But anyway, there we go. So sometimes a thing comes to you and it's an absolute essential that you then work on it. And I do know that there was a moment in which I thought this is not a short story, that it has to be a novel. And that's a dreadful moment because you sort of think this is years now, these are going to be years. But also, if you take a historical subject like this, you have to be terribly careful for the sake of the historians and the students that you are correct in everything. So there's a, there is a lot of research to be done so that you don't make mistakes. Although I have created fictional characters, there were 4,400 and something orphan girls brought to Australia uh, over a period of two years to be domestic servants for the new colony and, let's be honest, to have children for the new colony. Now, my belief is, is that they couldn't remember afterwards, that the whole thing of their story was so savage that the best thing for them to do was to forget. So what I'm doing really in this book is, is I'm in a way um, arrogantly, as a writer, being a bridge between what actually happened to them and what I imagine they might have done or lived. And I'm trying to remember for them. And I'm trying to remember for us to say, first of all, in Ireland, you know you have 4,400 young women who went to Australia. We, do, we don't know very much about them there either. Uh, and also for Australians to be able to say, these, these people are part of our matrilineal top. Yeah. And how did you come across the subject, Evelyn? What was the... 
Well, I heard about it a, a, a kind of at a few different times, a few different things at the one time. Now, I, I don't want to make this like sound like as if I'm <laughs> off the wall. There's a thing called the hungry grass in Ireland, which we say sometimes happens somebody when they cross a part in which there have been famine deaths. Now, I don't believe necessarily, I don't believe in ghosts, but however, I have to say that this happened to me at one time in my life. When I was a young one, long, long time ago, I spent a few years here in Australia, and one of the places I went to was Gundagai, and this really odd feeling came over me. Now, years later, I discovered what the hungry grass was in Ireland. I do believe that happened to me in Gundagai when I was a young one. And when I was ignoring all things Irish, because I had come to Australia not to be Irish, but to be Australian and to look at everything from an Australian point of view. So I had no interest, absolutely no interest. Then years later, I hear about the story. There is a documentary made by Siobhan McHugh for radio. There is a historical delineation of the names done by Trevor McLaughlin, and there's an interesting sort of small book done by Richard Reid and Cheryl Mongol and Dan and Yass. All of those things together was where I began the research. And then from there on in, it went on and on and on. Would you like to read a little bit for a second? Um, when I say that I base the kind of characters, I try to sort of decide what we as a human being, any of us, man or woman, would do under those circumstances. And I believe that we would split our personalities, that there'd be a bit that was sad and lonely, there'd be a bit that was practical, and hopefully there would be a skittery bit that would help us through. So Julia is the skittery one, and I'll read a little bit about her. Uh, where are we? Here we are, here, apologies. Julia Coff's first trouble came from her ability to mimic. She had tried it a few times in the first week on the ship. It had gone down well at home before the sickness, so she thought it might get her small concessions once they had set sail. She's just bad, she's just bad, Matron had said, but Charles said no. He thought that working in the kitchen might be the best for her, but she threw a pan at the wall. He moved her to the laundry room. He moved her to a scrubbing job. He moved her to helping Matron very early in the morning. He moved her to helping Matron very late at night. He moved her to the stern of the ship, to the middle of the ship, to the port of the ship. I'm at the back end this week, she shouted and laughed. Wait till I get to Australia. I'll show you back end. Although tempted, Charles did not move her to the hold. He tries to speak to her before he gets off and he says, Now, please, Miss Cuff, as you know, I have tried to show you the rudiments of domestic service, which is what you will be required to give. Kitchens, is that kitchens? Yes, kitchens, if you will. And when you arrive, you will be hired by people who will require you to have at least basic manners, of which you haven't shown much so far. Not a bit of it, she said. I don't go in for all that palaver. But I can get a job outside the kitchens, can't I? What kind of job, Charles said. How would I know? You're the one who brought me here. But you had a choice, he said. Some choice. Miss Cuff, she was at it again. Miss Cuff, it wasn't exactly me who choose you. Never mind. As I said, you will be required. Require away. I'm not from Australia. I know you're not now, but you are going to be. 
going to be from Australia. Don't be daft, begging your pardon, sir, as you say, but I couldn't be going to be from Australia. <laughs> well, be that as it may, you will have to find work. I know that, sir. I'll find something. But how will you find something? You will be a stranger here, there. I thought you said I was going to be from there. <laughs> Thank you, Evelyn. That was great. Um, so, Dominic, for you, you've, you're, you're the one who has the, the, um, well, the three different time periods that you're playing with. So, could you tell us, I suppose, I mean, you started, did you start with Holland or where did, it, where did actually, this start for you? So, I actually started with the painting. So, yeah. so in a lot of ways, uh, this book has three different characters and three different storylines that orbit around the 17th century Dutch mm. landscape. So... Uh, it really began with that, and that kind of led to, um, you know, rediscovering the story of, of what I think of as the lost women painters uh, of the Golden Age. Um, and this was a story that I'd been carrying around for a while, uh, about 15 or 16 years ago. I lived in Amsterdam for a year, and uh, I think like a lot of people and art lovers, you know, in my mind, the Dutch Golden Age was essentially Vermeer and Rembrandt, uh, and that's what it looked like. Uh, and so to discover that there were about 25 women admitted to the Guild of St. Luke, which was the main painter's guild in the 17th century, uh, was kind of a revelation to me. And so we have a very small percentage of those women with surviving works, and two of them in particular were the inspirations for the character of Sarah DeVos uh, in the novel, and in some ways for the, the landscape that's in the painting. Um, the first is this woman named Judith Leister, uh, who is a fascinating painter. She was uh, very well known during her lifetime, but for about 200 years after her death, um, she was really completely forgotten uh, in the art world. All of her paintings were either attributed to her husband, who was a painter, uh, or to Franz Hals, who was kind of the more famous member mm. of her guild. And so she really got rediscovered in the 1890s almost by accident. Um, a London art dealer had bought this painting that was, had been attributed to Franz Hals for a century, but he discovered her uh, signature on the painting, and then some other paintings were quickly found with the same uh, signature. And then there's this other really interesting kind of cipher uh, in all of this, which is this woman named Sarah van Balbergen, who was the very first woman in Holland to become a member of the Guild, which was incredibly difficult to become a master of the guild um, and we don't have any of her work that survived. Um, all we really know is that she was an oil painter and that she was admitted in 1631. And so this book in a way was trying to explore um, you know the missing layers and these gaps and silences in art history and trying to uh, kind of inject a narrative around that. And so we followed this painting through time uh, there's a wealthy lawyer who inherits it in the 1950s New York. And then there's this Australian character, uh, Ellie Shipley, uh, who was paid, uh, she's an, uh, she becomes a very celebrated art historian, but she was paid to make a copy or a forgery of this painting when she was a graduate student. So we kind of see that whole trajectory uh, through time. Um, and so what I thought I would read is the opening description of this painting by Sarah DeVos. Uh, which is called At the Edge of a Wood. Uh, and it's opened as if it's a description below a painting. So it says, oil on canvas, 30 inches by 24 inches, Sarah DeVos, Dutch, 1607 to 16XX. 
A winter scene at twilight. The girl stands in the foreground against a silver birch, a pale hand pressed to its bark, staring out at the skaters on the frozen river. There are half a dozen of them bundled against the cold, flecks of brown and yellow cloth floating above the ice. A brindled dog trots beside a boy as he arcs into a wide turn. One mitten in the air, he's beckoning to the girl, to us. Up along the riverbank, a village is drowsy with smoke and firelight, flush against the bell of the pewter sky. A single cataract of daylight at the horizon, a meadow dazzled beneath a rent in the clouds, then the revelation of her bare feet in the snow. A raven, quilled in violet and faintly iridescent, caws from a branch beside her. In one hand, she holds a frayed black ribbon twined between slender fingers, and the hem of her dress, visible beneath a long gray shawl, is torn. The girl's face is mostly in profile, her dark hair loose and tangled about her shoulders. Her eyes are fixed on some distant point. But is it dread or the strange halo of winter twilight that pins her in place? She seems unable or unwilling to reach the frozen riverbank. Her footprints lead back through the snow toward the wood, beyond the frame. Somehow, she's walked into this scene from outside the painting, trudged onto the canvas from our world, not hers. Thank you. So I just wanted to talk a bit, because all of you have picked these different historical moments where there are kind of, where there are gaps where we don't know exactly what happened, we don't know what it really felt like. And into that, you've created this, these works of fiction. So, uh, Dominic, was there a moment when... I'm sort of interested in that moment where it goes from being this historical gap to being a story you can mm. put in there. Like, was there a moment when you thought, I, you know, w there is something I can work here? Like, how did mm -hmm. that process happen for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that relationship between... You have to get certain things about the historical time period absolutely right. And I think that is kind of the scaffolding of the story. And then over the scaffolding, you you build um, drama. You have to build and invent characters. And even if you're dealing with historical, uh, real historical people, uh, there's almost always many, many gaps uh, in, in what we know of them. And so... Um, I think for me, the moment when this story uh, really came alive, uh, well, you know, I'd, I'd known the story of Judith Leister and her rediscovery for a while, um, but there was something bitterly ironic about the fact that when she was rediscovered after a 200-year silence, um, instead of it being this kind of hallelujah moment, we've discovered this lost Golden Age painter, uh, the value of the painting in question went down by 25% uh, because it wasn't a Franz Hals. Um, and, and it seemed to me that, you know, these women of the Golden Age were essentially uh, forgotten. Most of what, you know, where they do have surviving paintings, um, many of them were these still lifes, these kind of floral still lifes. Uh, but there are, there are many paintings that we haven't seen. Uh, and there's also cases of women who really defied expectations of the time and a, as artists. And so this idea that, um, you know, this, this question of why are there no landscapes by women of the mm -hmm. 17th century really plagued me. And um, the traditional explanation is that uh, basically to paint a landscape, women would have had to spend lots of hours outside 
and that just wasn't the role of women in the 17th century. But it never quite added up to me because you can bring a brother, you can bring a husband, you could bring a son to stand outside with you. I think the real reason there are no landscapes is it was very, um, landscapes were at the top of the pyramid in the kind of intellectual value of painting during the 17th century and men really wanted to hold on to that within the guild. So the training to paint landscapes just wasn't offered to women. Um, and so the, those things kind of combined, I think, turned the, the research and just the, the history, the fact, into a more compelling kind of drama that I wanted to explore. Mm. And at what point did you realize that there would be the other time periods as well, like you would sort of weave them in and how did that sort of yeah. process go? Yeah, I mean, I was, I, I think writing across multiple, I mean, this book spans 300 years, um, which even when I say it out loud just seems like a ridiculous <laughs> proposition. Um, but I, I, what I wanted to explore is the way that there's something transcendent about art, that art can, you know, you, the fact that you can buy a painting that's 400 years old uh, and it might have passed through many, many lives and many, many households, um, and yet it's largely the same painting 400 years later if it's been well-preserved than it was, um, you know, in the Dutch Golden Age. So I really wanted to explore that, uh, that idea, and it seemed like the main way to do it was to see that through time. And so I, I went back and I thought about, you know, great movies like The Red Violin, where we follow a, a single object through time. I thought about Don DeLillo's novel, Underworld, where it, it all orbits around this baseball through time. And there's something about that structure that really appealed to me. Mm. All right, great. And I was interested, it's interesting that all three of you have written stories about women in these forgotten, these sort of gaps in, in history. And so, Kate, for you, I mean, this was your first novel. So what, you were interested in the story, but then how did that become, how did you know that that was going to be your book and how did that come alive for you? I didn't really intend to write a book. Yeah. Um, that's the <laughs> first part. But I think what I had um, after that camping trip was this one event um, that was shocking and that was the only piece of information you could find about these two girls everywhere that I, that I looked at at first. And that struck me too that there was something... Um, and notorious, titillating even about this kind of event that had occurred. Uh, and there was nothing else to explore what these women's lives might have been like, particularly because, of course, they weren't the lighthouse keeper and there was no uh, record of their lives. Um, and that gap, similarly, that, that gap really interested me. Um, I think, too, that I wanted to, to draw a parallel between those things that I saw as the same as now. So women's friendship, that um, coming of age kind of time where um, you're finding out about your body and the effect that your body has on others and trying to work out your place in the world. And I thought, you know, there's parts of that that, that haven't changed, that are the same. And I wanted to, to draw on that as well. Um, the, fiction, the fiction part of it was really exploring, um, speculating on what might have happened um, that led up to the event, and I think in a way, um, a little like Hannah Kent did in, in Burial Rights, it was trying to um, think about a different, a different way of, of considering these women and what might have happened in their lives. Um, the research part and, and where I first came upon Kate's voice was actually in some inquest reports that, were, um, that I found using Trove, which if you haven't used Trove, it's so fabulous, the NLA's resource. Um, so they're in the Shoalhaven Times from 1887 and her voice was in there and it um, 
it came out pretty quickly after that and I think at some point I've written in my journal somewhere I think that I might be writing a novel and wow. that's that's kind of where um where it went I I avoided writing the part that I knew had to happen for a really long time because it was um so distressing to me to have to write it I'd become very obsessed with um Kate and Harriet so much so that at one point my editor said no oh, when when they picked it up said have you thought about changing Kate's name because it's your name and I was <laughs> And I had a moment where I was like, oh, yes, it is my name. Because I'd been so um, obsessed with these characters um, and I couldn't change Kate or Harriet um, because they're so much part of the real history. Yeah. And did you, were you, did you do the research and then go and write or were you doing, did you sort of I come didn't, in and out? Or yeah, like that I, I came in and out a lot of it at the same time. I spent a lot of time in lighthouses. Mm -hmm. um, I camp... Uh, on a part of the Victorian coast, which I'm not allowed to speak about because we're not allowed to tell anyone where it is in case they all turn up and camp there. <laughs> but um, there's a lighthouse there and I've spent... I, I, I've gone there since I was, I was a kid. So I um, have had the privilege of sitting in the light, the old original light in that lighthouse and spending lots of time in that one. And I went to other Victorian lighthouses as well to look at them. Um, I spent... I also had the pleasure of working at the State Library in, in Melbourne and so I spent lots of time looking at um, Lighthouse Keeper's records and some journals from women, young women um, of the time so that I could kind of capture the voice and, and the worldview um, of those women and read books from the time that I thought that th those girls might have been reading as well. But, yeah, lots of in and out, lots of kind of writing and then Googling and going, oh, my gosh, like, <laughs> you know, what would they have eaten? And stealing my grandmother's pudding recipe, um, which oh, was, was a lovely part. Really? It's my grandmother's. Oh, I've, nice. I'm now in charge of doing the Christmas pudding, so it's, <laughs> yeah, big responsibility. Yeah, fantastic. So, Evelyn, you probably had the most material to work with, I suspect, of the three of you, I wonder. I'm not sure. I don't know sure how much you had, Dominic, but I, was it fairly well documented what you were writing about and did you, did you feel there were lots of gaps for you to insert a story into? Um, actually, I, I, I think they're not very well documented. Mm. Um, what, what has happened is, is the one book that I mentioned, which does it he tries to get the names at this precise moment there are a number of genealogists from australia who are trying to go back to ireland and try and figure out the names so they're actually they are trying to in fact find a name for each of the four thousand whatever what i felt was odd was and i think this is what i wanted to do in the book because it isn't just about that one event it's about memory and it's about why sometimes people have to forget. The best thing, in fact, is to forget. Like, any one of us could stand still and remember every single thing that happened to us. It wouldn't be a very good thing to do. You wouldn't move forward very much. And I think, in a way, those girls had to forget. So it's, it's about more than just them. It's about what happens to people. And I was also very interested in the notion of distance and for instance when a lot of irish people went to um uh, to america uh, at the end of the famine somehow or another there was a notion that they might at some stage go back now they probably weren't going to go back but there was a notion that they might whereas if they came to australia that's the end of that so what you do is is you just put it away um so i was interested in that and i was interested in you know trauma <laughs> So, you know, let's discuss their trauma. No. 
So I don't actually discuss the trauma. I feel that the, the reader, you know, every book, there's a writer, but the reader finishes it. And I sort of felt, in a way, I wasn't going to patronise the reader by um, having big storm scenes and massive crying and waifs and that, because the reader brings that themselves. So um, I think the problem for me when I was doing the book first was that I had three timelines. I had a 1960s person, or 1970s person comes to Australia, and she's the middle person between the modern day voice, there is a one little bit of a modern day voice, and, the, and them. But then when that was taken out of the novel and the whole thing nearly collapsed, uh, I, I then began to think, I had to answer my own question, why am I doing this? And, you know, I don't want to bore you with why I was doing it. And in fact, I don't even really know now why I was doing it. But I came to a good answer at the time. And then that brought the, the bits together. And interestingly enough, I have now rescued the 1970s person, and I'm just finishing a novella, uh, or a very long short story, or a novella, about that 1970s person who comes to Australia. I'm interested in longing as well. When people do move very far away, what sort of longing? And do you have longing that actually goes into your body or into your brain and lives for generations, even though you didn't know you had it? Mm. And also sometimes, you know, when people when they're young and happy and they travel somewhere, and then suddenly 25 years later, when they're also happy, older and happy, or maybe even 40 years later, they suddenly get this shocking longing for that other place. Like, why would that be? Why would that be? You know, um, it's like, you know, they say that terrible things go into the stone, that you can actually say that where a battle was fought, um, um, that there are things in the stone. Maybe, you know, in our bodies and in our minds and in our countries, this goes in. So that's, that's what I was sort of grappling with in the book, grappling with it. Yeah. I was very taken by that idea that, you know, they just, they couldn't allow themselves to remember. In order to, to prosper here, they just had to forget. Did you feel in some way that by writing the book, you were remembering that for them or you were honouring some memory that they couldn't acknowledge? Absolutely. Although, as I was writing it, and as writers will know, you can't be thinking about what you're at. Because if you think about what you're at, it'll stop you. So I didn't... But I, but I know when it... I knew when it was finished that that's what I had been at. And I also knew, you know, there are moments when you're writing something and, and when you're researching in particular, and, and, and the other writers here will know that. When I stood at a grave in Yass, I was almost overcome. Yeah. And I kept thinking, there'll be no tears in here. I'm not doing any of that stuff. But I really did feel this is unbelievable. Like, because some of these people were buried there. There's another very interesting thing. I discovered that there's a small chapel in Yass in which there had been something like about six weddings the previous, let's say, five years. There's 120 weddings in two years. But nobody has ever written about this before. And I thought, but you know why? Because you can't write about it too soon. So that's those women. Nobody said, where did all the people come from to marry? Like, how did that happen? So those kind of, so you sort of feel, yes, that you have fictionally, 
given a voice to something that was gone. And there's a great, uh, there's a great American short story writer, Tony Cade Bambera, who said she's a fiction writer for two reasons. One, if she didn't write fiction, the next door neighbor would be getting half the royalties. And the second <laughs> reason is that she is a born liar. And in a way, I think that fiction tells the lie. You, we use lies or untruth to tell the truth. And that's what it's about. I'm also interested in the idea of of voice, you know, and how you how you f how you find a voice that is from hundreds of years ago, and what is different about that voice as opposed to a modern voice. And was that an issue that you wrestled with, or I mean, you've both spoken about how, in a lot of ways, you were trying to look at what was the same between now and then. But were there bits where you felt like the voice had to be different? I'm not really sure who I'm addressing that to there, but any, whoever, did you feel that that was an issue? Mm. Um, certainly, certainly Kate's voice came to me really early on, as I said, mm. from that original um, inquest transcript and that, that kind of stuck. Um, but I think, yeah, that there's an element where you can't have her wandering around talking about one says and one does and in, in her language that might have been accurate at the time, all the time, because it, it grates a little. Um, and I did want to make sure that readers could come to it in a way that they felt they were bridging that gap in history as well. Um, what was wonderful about Kate's voice and why I think I could keep writing is because she was in my ear all the time and at certain points. Um, at one point, actually, I did decide that I couldn't write it anymore. I was overcome with a feeling that if this had happened to myself and my best friend, it would be um, horrendous to think that someone would, would write about it and unpack it and unravel it. But... Um, but she actually got in my head and kind of... I, I did an exercise where I wrote a letter to myself from her and she said, no, this is an important story. Um, and it was, you know, it was a way of getting myself going again. But I think that because her voice stuck, um, I, could, I could carry on with it. Mm, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah. Did you feel that you... Did you ever have those where you thought, is this my story? Or I, I, I'm thinking at very early on in my writing life, somebody started talking to me about voice. And I remember thinking, I don't understand what they mean. Mm. And I think in some ways, if you were to think about the voice too much, you would actually lose the thing. It's a funny job, you know, to be writing. Um, uh, Tony Cade Bambera, again, going back to her, she said that writing short stories is a job, it's work. But writing a novel is a way of life. Mm. And in a way, when you take on a novel, you do immerse yourself, like when she talks about the voice or when you talk about the history in the 300 years. When I was writing a book about death row and when I went on to death row in the United States, but I met this group of people in America, I won't, I won't, I won't take up too much time talking about it, but, f but their voices were, were, were stayed in my ears for ages. And I remember one time going to, I don't know what your equivalent here is, kind of like unemployment, and I wanted to get three months in which I would write a whole lot of this and get it over and done with. And I thought, I'm going to try and sign on for something, you know, and sort of not do my normal endless work. So I'm trying to explain to this person that it would be a good <coughs> idea to give me a little bit of money for a few months <laughs> so I could do this. And I explain, you see, why I want to do this particularly quickly, because I want to get rid of it. And she then said, do, do you think you need counselling? <laughs> And I thought, if you pay for it, I need it. 
But they didn't, by the way. Sorry, that's not answering your question. Okay, in other words, I don't think too much about voice. I think about, I think about what the obsession is, and I say, this is what I am writing now, and I will get on with it, and then we can look at the rest afterwards. What about you, Dominic? Because yours, I mean, your voice, you know, a 17th century female painter, yeah. like that's sort of, that's... I mean, in a lot of ways, it wasn't voice, it was image in this book. Yeah. And in fact, um, looking at, so Judith Leister has this uh, self-portrait that she painted in 1630, and it was actually the painting she probably submitted to get into the guild. And early on, I saw this painting. Uh, it's in the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. And... Uh, it's incredible because it's um, she's looking directly at the viewer. Uh, she's kind of dressed in her finest clothing, but she's also set up at an easel with all of her brushes in hand. And it's incredibly immediate. She's got this bright smile on her face. She, it's very welcoming. It feels like we've kind of walked into her studio one afternoon. Um, so for me, it was images like that, like actually surrounding myself with... 17th century painting, you know, not the paintings themselves, but actual, <laughs> you know, images of those paintings uh, to try to make contact with that world and try to see the story through that lens. Uh, and, and so image can also be really powerful because there weren't a lot of direct voices. There are no real journals or diaries that I use for the women painters themselves. Uh, mostly what I got was travelers' Uh, descriptions of what it was like to be in Amsterdam, for example, in the 1630s, and, and those voices helped in some way. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that's very impressive about the book is that you've done an awful lot of research about conservation techniques and forgery techniques and obviously about art history and all that, but the, the book wears that very lightly, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I'm interested in, you know, you must have found out so much and how you how you sort of stop putting all of that in and just use what you need and that's Yeah, I mean, process. so I think there's two sides to it. One side is you, you've got to go and do the archive research and that helps, it's a good foundation. But for me, more and more, it's about um, finding subject matter experts, people who've spent their whole lives in this world. And so for me, there was an art historian, uh, there was a restoration expert, and there, there was also an art forger who was willing to kind of divulge some of his uh, technical prowess um, in, in writing this book. And, and really, I think, as a kind of, more and more when I'm writing a novel, I think of it as uh, field work. It's a kind of anthropology. Um, there's the writing itself, but in terms of the research, I think if you only live in the archive and you only build the story from documents, what you end up with is you get very attached to all these uh, atmospheric details that you think absolutely have to be in the book. And I think what I've learned over time through a couple historical novels is that you really, you know, your job is to, to uh, you don't want to treat the reader like a tourist. So if you drown them in detail, if you give them too many signposts to navigate their way through 17th century Amsterdam, for example, uh, it all, it tends to flatten out the impact of the drama. And so, I think you find that the most evocative, most interesting 10% of those details that you find, and, and they should do work. They should build something in the book um, rather than just kind of throw them at the reader. Yeah, sure. Because Kate, I think I read somewhere that when you'd written your story and your version of this friendship between these two women, that you wanted to then stop researching in case you found out you were wrong. <laughs> is, that, yeah. is that right? 
Well, certainly partly. One of the things that I did really early on was try and find out what happened to Kate and I couldn't. Um, I couldn't, uh, I assumed that she got married and her name changed and it was impossible to trace the history of what happened to her. Um, a couple of times I had uh, leads that ended up in wrong spots and at one time I read something about her that so shocked me um, that I was in tears for about an hour and my husband came running out and said, you know, what's happened? Has something gone wrong? And I said, yes. But um, I did my research and due diligence and that was Wikipedia and it was wrong. Um, but... Yeah, I, I mean, there's a part of me that absolutely wants to wants someone to come forward and say, I know that this is what happened. Um, at the same time, it is absolutely the only way it happened to my Kate and Harriet that, that I wrote and there was inev an inevitability about, um, yeah, coming to that conclusion and the way that I think it happened too. Has, it, has anyone contacted you about anything of any of the historical details in the novel? No, not as no. such. I, I did, you know, I talked to people in um, Shoalhaven at the museum, and someone has written um, a book that I did take some information from. the The story of what happened at Cape St George Lighthouse is so extraordinary. All the other things that happened around it, and the lighthouse itself, which was blown up because it was put in the same, wrong spot. Um, you know, there's a lot of other material there if anyone else wants to write novels about Cape St George. <laughs> I, I'm thinking just an, it, a very strange thing happened to me. This book came out in Australia a few years ago, and I was here. And it was, um, uh, there was a reading uh, in, uh, outside Hyde Park Barracks, which is where these young women would have been brought before they were hired out. And underneath a tree, and I'm signing books, and this man came up and I, uh, he said, can you send it, sign it to me? My name's Patrick and whatever. And then he said, would you mind writing my ancestor's name as well? Because he knew that one of these young girls was his. He had traced it back. And it was the weirdest thing imaginable uh, to be writing for this person to ask me to, to, to write his, his, his person's name. But because I have fictionalized, you see, you can get into terrible trouble then as well, because you have to watch if these if this is real in a way, but you're fictionalizing, you know, historians get very upset with fiction writers, and rightly so sometimes, but then in other ways, because we're walking over, you know, we decide that we can be the bird in the sky looking down at what has happened. Historians say that they have to stick to the facts. Now, mind you, what are facts? And what facts do they stick to? And like the women that they decide were not going to remember that they did any paintings. I mean, they make choices all the time. But they would say to fiction writers that you're actually destroying the facts. And I wouldn't say so. I would say that fiction is a kind of corridor of the truth that adds bits into history. And then you have both of them together. Yeah. I think. What, what draws you to historical fiction? You've written a few historical novels, Dominic. What is it, what is it about it that appeals to you? Yeah, I think, I think the appeal is the idea that you can walk around in another mindset. I mean, the thing that we don't realize is that, you know, not only do physical spaces change, but the mindset changes. So actually trying to work out how uh, you know a painter saw the work in 17th century Holland is fascinating. I mean, for me, I went there, and, and I've always assumed that if you look at a Rembrandt, 
there's so much beauty there that there must have been all this kind of mysticism surrounding painting. But actually, the Dutch painted the way, the, they painted in a way that was very similar to the way they built ships. It was very methodical, it was very thought out. There were all these kinds of rules of what you did at what phase of, of the process. And so um, I think one of the great, you know, one of the nice things about writing historical fiction is that you go back and you discover these other ways of thinking. Uh, and at first they often feel quaint and uh, I think th there's a tendency to be condescending towards it because it, it is so outdated. But when you start to play around that and then you find a way to bridge it for the modern reader, someone who uh, you know, has a different psychology than a character 400 years ago, I think that's where it gets really interesting. And so you, know, you try to bring the reader into that to experience some of another, um, another lifetime. And, I think if you do it well, um, that can be, you know, a great reading pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was one small and interesting detail in your book about that sort of mindset was how, you know, the sophisticated Manhattan, um, you know, art collector still has a superstition about the painting <laughs> and the luck it brings him. You know, I thought that yeah. was a lovely kind of how these, what we might consider an older framework, these, yeah. these, they persist. Well, and he comes from this kind of blue blood Dutch, you know, this bloodline. And one of the things that's interesting is the Dutch were incredibly religious in the 17th century. They were also great drinkers. Um, and there's lots of like bawdy tavern scenes. They were also kind of wildly superstitious. So there are all these ways in which, like for example, there's a scene in the book where a, a whale has washed ashore uh, and all of Amsterdam goes out to see this. And really uh, a whale washing up was kind of a sign from the deep. It was like a harbinger that something terrible was gonna happen. And so Marty de Groot in many ways in his Dutch bloodline has weirdly inherited all these much smaller uh, kind of superstitions that he carries around. That's mm. mm. fascinating, yeah, because you've both talked to the sort of inheritance of, of feelings and mm -hmm. of superstitions and things that you know, often I suppose you can perhaps explore in historical fiction more than in history. Um, I, think there's a, I think there's a sort of a debate as well as to whether, you know, what is historical fiction? Like, if you're writing about history, does that make it into historical fiction? I'm not so sure. I don't know. I mean, I know that a reviewer here in Australia told me what the book was about <laughs> in the context of historical fiction, and I was very pleased that she did because I hadn't really seen... No, I really... I'm, I'm just being <laughs> funny. I hadn't seen what it was that she saw in the book, and that was very interesting because she then compared it to other historical fiction because I hadn't seen it at all like that. If I'm taking a subject, for instance, I wanted to write, I went to Hiroshima, I wanted to write about the feeling of Hiroshima. I actually wrote an article for the Irish Times, but it didn't feel that it was finished for me, and I wanted to write a story. And the funny thing is, is, I thought, how do you get into that? And I decided that what I would do is, is I'd write it from the point of view of an academic who goes to speak to the first woman who deliberately became pregnant after the bomb was dropped. Because in my feeling is, is that any human being who could deliberately decide to become pregnant after that is quite an astonishing human being. So the academic goes to meet this woman, and he meets the woman, and she's about 85 or whatever age she is. And there's a man there beside her, and he's just hoping that it was him who made her pregnant. But then he just cannot ask her or him anything. And I think, in a way, that's what historical fiction is like, in a way. It sets up something. It allows us to have a look at it, 
to get the reader to have a real look at it. But in a way, it doesn't really have any answer. Will yeah. your next book be historical fiction, Kate? No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed writing and I think part of getting into the mindset too is that empathy that you have to sit with to um, consider a different worldview and a worldview that's sometimes really problematic as well or can be, mm. um, in, especially when you're talking about Australian history. I think mm. um, for me that was problematic. But um, no, I don't think historical fiction <laughs> for the moment. <laughs> All right. Well, look, we have about 10 minutes left for questions when there's a hand that has shot straight up. Mm. Oh, hold on. I think we have a microphone running over to you. There we go. Mm. Distinguished guests, care to comment? That would be uh, uh, most welcome. I am a historian, I regret to inform you, <laughs> but I have also uh, dabbled in historical fiction and I understood very much the conversation about voice. It took me five years to liberate myself from my historian's discipline in order to be able to write as a fiction, a historical fiction writer. That was probably the most problematic moment, uh, period, throughout the whole process. The rest was... Uh, difficult, enjoyable, absolutely engaging. But my question is this. Um, we know, Kate, I've not yet read your book. I'm looking forward to that. Um, we know the, the, a man turned up and bad things started to happen. He's a fisherman. We know approximately when this action occurred. We know, if we don't look at Wikipedia, approximately where it occurred. Do we know his name? And if we do, how confident are you that your observations, your characterization of this man uh, is not going to give offence to his ancestors? It's a good question, thank you. Um, I did, I took those little morsels that I took from the real history, um, including the, the first names of the characters or the last name in MacPhail's case. I've changed the rest in case I, uh, have taken um, my fictional licence too far. Um, but I think uh, I'd be interested to hear from, from any relatives who, who went into it. But I think, yeah, I have taken, um, made sure that it's clear that this is my fictional interpretation of what happened to those characters. Thank you. Are there any other questions? Yes, here we go, down the front. I really enjoyed your book. Uh, I was just wondering whether it has been published, has it been published in Holland? And how has it, it been has, received there? actually, just yeah. in the last uh, six weeks or so. Um, and uh, yeah, I have a copy. It's, it's a very different cover. Uh, when I lived in Amsterdam, I didn't really, I learned about five words of Dutch, so I have no idea if it's actually my book or not, but it, it, looks, <laughs> it looks pretty. Um, so yes, it's, it's out in Holland. Yeah. And how's it been received there, Dominic? Uh, I couldn't tell you because all the coverage is in Dutch, but yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I do get forwarded links, and you know, it, it looks it looks like it's it's um, having a little splash there, uh, and so it's coming out in a few other places in Europe, and um, so yeah, we'll see. It's been exciting. Yeah, yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, we have another question over My here. My questions <laughs> for Evelyn. A very beautiful book, Evelyn. Thank you. Profoundly uh, moving. And I was interested in how you placed the captain of the ship and the compassion and empathy he had for the girls. Um, it, 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 he, he was a real person, Charles Strutt. 
And one of the things is, is that I, I, I finally found that there was a diary which is attributed to him. I think, I presume, we can presume it was his diary, his log book in a university, no, in, a lib in Melbourne. And I went there, and it's sort of quite an extraordinary thing to hold it. Now, it's very flat writing, but I stayed true. I, I was very struck by what I felt was that he was a moral human being. I think that lots of people who were surgeon superintendents on ships were not. And his boast that his girls, as he called them, were fatter when they got to Sydney than when he had picked them up uh, is a real boast, and it was because he had fed them. So, he, so part of what I write about his organisation of the food is based on the fact that the girls were fatter when they arrived in Sydney. So... Again, you know, uh, as in that some people had complained that I didn't have huge storms and loads of crying, uh, somebody complained about how, you know, why did I make this man as benign as he was? And I feel that I stayed true to the truth there, which is that on that particular ship, the surgeon superintendent was a moral human being. And it is true, you see, that his father had been a surgeon. It's true that his mother was a writer and a painter. So I believe that the influence of them as well came into him as a human being. Yeah. Are there any other questions? Mm. Yes, down the back here. Mm. Um, it's interesting to know where you people go to get your examples, and I was particularly interested in Dominic Smith saying that uh, he p picked out various people to research the various uh, historic figures. I'd like to know where he went to find a man who was so committed to marital fidelity that his character almost collapsed when he failed himself on that issue. <laughs> <laughs> Are we talking about Marty de Groot in this, yeah. in this book? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, he's an interesting character. I mean, without any spoilers in the book, uh, you know, there's always a temptation as a writer, you know, I think sex and infidelity are like the, the quagmires of, of fiction writing because they're, they're very difficult. They're also, if handled the wrong way, incredibly dull and boring. And so a married man having uh, an affair um, was just not that interesting to me. So um, what I wanted to do is really make that seduction very closely tied to the idea of forgery and the double and the idea of um, there being an imposter. Because it seemed to me that really at the heart of this book there's this idea that, that one of the reasons forgeries strike such a chord is that we, you know we feel that we've fallen in love with something that is authentic, whether you know a painting on the wall, and then when we find out that it's a fake, we feel like we've fallen in love with an imposter. And so I wanted that to really inform the seduction and the infidelity uh, in the book, just because I think it's more dramatically interesting than you know a, a weary middle-aged man having an affair with his secretary, for example. Um, so. Mm -hmm. Great. I think we've got time for a couple more. If there are any more questions from the audience? Mm. Yes.
I think a great example. Did everyone example. hear that, by the way? Did you hear that down there? Yep. I think a great example of that is Hilary Mantel's uh, historical mm. fiction because it, there, there is steeped in history, but the psychology feels modern to me. And I think that's, for me, the, the benchmark of, of you want the atmosphere and the details to feel like they belong to that time period. But if you stay too close to what you imagine to be the psychology of that century, it may just be dull. <laughs> mm. uh, and also the same is true of language. Um, I mean, I think historical fiction at its worst is just a transcript of lots of things that you find that people said in journals and diaries. You have to somehow bring it to life. And that mm -hmm. life at the end of the day is dramatic, right? So it has to feel like it's alive and, and mm. you can relate to it now. So um, I, I do think it's an interesting mm. counterplay between you know, the, the truth of the period and the, what's documented, mm. and yet it still it has to be drama, and drama lives now. Mm. It doesn't live in the past. I, I, I've just suddenly thought of, of, of a kind of a very interesting thing. I don't know if anybody here ever saw Brian Friel's play translations. Maybe some of you have. But Brian Friel is an Irish playwright, and he wrote um, a play about when the Ordnance Survey man comes from England to tell the people that they have to change the language, they have to change the signs, it's all been done in English. How the play is written is, is that you as an audience are sitting there with the English language, listening to it in English, but one of the people on the stage only speaks Irish, and the translator is the person who has the power and you are convinced, as you are sitting there, that you're listening to the Irish language, and you're not. You're listening to the English language. Uh, and the translator is translating the two things from you, and the translator will say what he has just said is, but you know, because you've heard him, that that's not what he has said. And I think, in a way, that answers the thing about, as a writer, what you're trying to do is, is make yourself understood, even though you're actually describing something that's not directly in the language that the person is reading it. Mm. I think I think also to draw on um, Hilary Mantel, she talks about that otherness, you know, that she's she's trying for a, a voice that has got a sense of otherness in it as opposed to being, you know, historically accurate. And I think that that's important mm -hmm. to go for as well. Well, Hilary Mantel is always a great place to end a conversation <laughs> about historical fiction. So thank you so much all for coming and thank you so much to all our writers. Please thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2016. You can find other recorded talks and discussions on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.